On September 8th, 2015, the first episode of Setlisting Bruce was released. To celebrate our anniversary month, I plan to put out a new episode every day this month. During this month, I would like to share feedback from my listeners. If you have any thoughts, questions, or comments for me or any of my guests, please send me an email at setlustingbruce at gmail.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 469-249-2442. If you're not part of our Patreon group, please think about supporting the podcast by making a small monthly donation. Everyone who joins gets a personal thank you card from me and a Set Lusting Bruce sticker. Depending on your level, you can get early access to episodes and unedited videos of my discussions with guests. If you haven't rated the podcast before, please go to wherever you get your podcast and leave a rating, hopefully five star, and let people know why you love the podcast. Hope you enjoy this month of episodes, and now on to the show. And I'll tell you where the inspiration for that comes from, actually, is Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck. Yes. That's one of my all-time favorite books. And in fact, I just reread it and rewatched the film the other day because I, so I'm a professor at UC Riverside, and I host a film series based on banned books, films based on banned books. And we just watched Of Mice and Men again. But that book, I read it for the first time when I was probably 10 or 11 years old and had a really profound effect on me. It was the first book I'd ever read that made me cry. And that last scene where George kills Lenny, as a kid, I had never read anything like that before in my life, where it's a mercy killing. He kills him so the lynch mob doesn't. He gives him an end that's born out of love and kindness between these two men and not through hate or malice. And I was aware of that when I was writing this book. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. It is not often that a guest makes a promise to me and then absolutely nails it. Multiple years ago, my guest was on the podcast. He was having a good time, and he says... From now on, anytime I have a new book, I'm going on your show to promote it. So Todd Goldberg has a new book, and he <laughs> is here to promote it. Todd, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Here's the deal. Anytime I can talk about my books with your audience, I know I'm talking to people with really good taste because we all have the, fav- the same favorite songs. So yes. It's essentially like talking to myself, and there's no one I love more than me. <laughs> and it also, I've talked a lit about this, and we are going to talk about, we're going to talk about Bruce, but we're also, Gangsters Don't Die, if I plan my editing right, it is out today, <laughs> in a timey-wimey <laughs> fashion, uh, pull the curtain back, we're, t- we're uh, recording this early, but if I get my editing right, it is available today. It is the fourth book of a trilogy, and we'll get into that as well. But I've been thinking all day how to start, Todd, and I believe it's the Talmud that says, My father's house shines hard and bright. It stands like a beacon calling me in the night, calling and calling so cold and alone, shining cried this dark highway where our sins lie unatoned. <laughs> I I believe that's Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> <laughs> that is, I have to applaud your self-control because if I was writing a book where a character often slips in Springsteen lyrics, but saying it is from the Jewish holy books, <laughs> I would have overdone that bit so much. Yeah. I, and you just, it's like 
seasoning. You just sprinkled enough in to make it funny and make it insightful, but you didn't overpower the reader. So the funny thing is, in so in the first book of the trilogy, which is in fact four books, it, it's a huge part of it because the rabbi David Cohen, who's really a hitman named Sal Cupertine, is learning all the Jewish holy books and trying to essentially memorize quotes to give to the folks from his synagogue when they come to him with trouble. And he can say things like, if a man comes to kill you, wake up early and kill him first, which is actually from the Talmud. <laughs> or he can say, is a dream a lie that don't come true? Or is it something worse? And so in the first book, it's a big recurring joke. But it also is, it has a deadly ending because at the end of the first book, he's found out by an FBI agent. I'm not spoiling it. I've written three yeah. books. <laughs> so right. he's found out by an FBI agent who's, that's not the Talmud, that's Bruce Springsteen. And the rabbi David Cohen has to kill him. So after that point, I wanted to keep using it as a joke and as a fallback for him. But because he now knows that other people know the, those quotes as well as he does, I couldn't do it as often. And in this book, I really reserved it for really important moments. And I, I won't tell you when those moments are. I, I, you just read the book, so you, you know them. But yeah, they happen in, in both important moments where no one knows that he's saying it, and then important moments when he's found out. And it's for me, it's about showing the growth of this character that he doesn't need to slip up and quote Springsteen because he's a rabbi now. But it's also to feed the fans so that every now and then they get a little something from from a song, any song that isn't Wrecking Ball, that is, is open yeah. for interpretation as the Talmud. <laughs> One of the things when I had you on the first time, I had just read the first book. And I had said, I wasn't sure who I was cheering for, whether it right. was the FBI guy or our hitman. And you left it like, oh, yeah, that's interesting, Jesse. And then later we found out that, and once again, not spoilers, the characters are gray. Some of the people that we are assume are heroes are not so heroic. Right. And our villain actually has a redemption arc. Mm-hmm. Though he keeps key killing people. That is I, one of the wonderful things is his first instinct is, okay, how would I kill this person? Oh, wait. Let, okay, let's go to plan B, right? But plan A always is, well, I can take him out. Yeah, and, and that's the arc of this character is that it, it's really a fight of nature versus nurture. Yeah. Who is this man now? And as he's had to pretend to be a rabbi over the course of these books, and it's four years of time in the books, um, the neural pathways that he's now paved with fate now cause him to stop before he just immediately shoves a fork in someone's eye. He's now a more considerate assassin. <laughs> and I think that also that allows for the reader to never be quite sure what's going to happen in any given scene, because what I want the reader to always be afraid of is that in every scene, there is the possibility that the Rabbi David Cohen slash Sakupertine is going to kill someone. And in the last book, I really amped that up. All family business gets settled in this book, as they say in, in The Godfather. And in this case, you don't know who he's going to kill and who he's going to let live. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Music. Everyone loves it. But who listens to the lyrics? We do. Spread the word around. Guess who's back in town? Why is this my job? <laughs> Why is this on me now? I didn't even like those guys. <laughs> the Story Song Podcast is the comedy podcast that reviews the lyrics of your favorite songs. Exploring the details only hinted at and speculating wildly about the plots. To an almost reckless degree. And the, the boy has picked up the nickname Patches because they're very poor and all his clothes have patches on it. And he thinks, well, sure, you know, the kids make fun of me, but I get to go home and be with my loving family. And uh, no, his dad also calls him Patches. <laughs> his and dad then, succumbs to peer pressure. I don't want to do it, but if I don't call you Patches, all the other kids are going to make fun of me. The cool kids are coming. Shut up, Patches, loser. And he punches him in the arm. I got to go cut class. Join Dan, Rachel, and Michael as we break down the lyrics you've heard a thousand times but have never thought about. Just leave it to us, because we overthink everything. How many widows are in this I town? Know. Where are all the men? Where have people all the cowboys just, gone, people. is what I'm asking. We also do a deep dive into the history of the song and the artist. We explore the colorful backstory, the who, what, and where of the songs you can't get out of your head. Show of hands. Who here knew that Riggs Springfield was Australian? No clue. The Wikipedia article started with, you guys, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> the Story Song Podcast. We tell the story of the songs that tell a story. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. The Story Song Podcast is a member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I remember we've talked about in the past your love of Lawrence Block and, mm -hmm. and my uh, love of him. And I remember in one of the Keller books that he was he had been contracted to kill someone and the guy ends up finding out and they ended up becoming friends and at the end of the short story, I, I, the character basically is like, I'm dying of an incurable disease, but you've helped me realize I want to have good life and I'm happy. And then Keller's idea is I'm going to help my friend by I'm going to kill him and he won't see it's coming. Right. His mind right. he still has that. I, I'm now instead of killing for money or revenge, I'm killing out of love. And the reason I'm bringing up is you have a little bit of that in this mm -hmm. book at the end, don't you? Uh, and I'll tell you where the inspiration for that comes from, actually, is Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck. Yes. That's one of my all-time favorite books. And in, in fact, I just reread it and rewatched the film the other day because I, so I'm a professor at UC Riverside and I host a film series based on banned books, films based on banned books. And we just watched Of Mice and Men again. But that book, I read it for the first time when I was probably 10 or 11 years old and had a really profound effect on me. It was the first book I'd ever read that made me cry. And that last scene where George kills Lenny, as a kid, I had never read anything like that before in my life, where it's a mercy killing. He kills him so the lynch mob doesn't. He gives him an end that's born out of love and kindness between these two men and not through hate or malice. And 
I was aware of that when I was writing this book is, you know what, there are relationships in this book that deserve that sort of ending and deserve a moment of grace and not violence. And I won't spoil it, but there's one particular relationship where he does, in fact, kill a person. And it's been a fraught relationship over the course of three books. But it ends with him giving him, giving this other person kindness because he recognizes that this other person is a better man than him, is a, is a good man. And then he goes off and he also helps his family later on. So there's a lot of stuff that he does. But that's the arc. That's the arc of this character is he has found empathy and he has found, he has found the good in others, a good that he did not believe existed. Fake it till you make it is a common <laughs> phrase and joke. And I I thought of that as I'm going through this, that you're right. Like after a while, you become what you're pretending to be. And by right. the end and by the end of this series, which you gave a great ending yeah, that left it you. open enough that if you decide <laughs> to play in that world again, you can. But you notice yes, that. <laughs> yes. The idea that, and this isn't, and I grew up watching Disney movies. I, I love happy endings. This is not all of a sudden you're this magical transformation of the beast to the prince. He continues to be a complex character. Yeah. And I, I really wanted, I didn't want to resolve the book too easily because he's done bad things and he's had a, a, a weird life and there's this question through all the books, is he going to be reunited with his wife and his child? And I won't spoil that either. But what I knew is that the man who left his wife and child four years earlier is not the same man that would return to that wife and child. And likewise, that wife and that child, Jennifer and William, would not be the same people either. And so what does that mean? In a romance novel, everyone would get together in the end and they'd hug and kiss and water would crash over their feet and a small child would tug on a leg and there'd be a golden retriever and the yeah. orchestra would rise. But that's not reality. When people get back together after not seeing one another for a long time and they've been pulled apart by trauma, there's this sort of rich history of people not staying together afterward. And I wanted to, I want to explore who these people were and if they do get back together in this book, what could that possibly be like? And have them both wondering those things. Well, and you mentioned nature versus nurture. To quote another phrase, not just from Lawrence Bach, the sins of the father. Mm -hmm. Is this is, we have three generations now of these Culpepper, right? And yeah. how much of this is in the genes? How much is this in the upbringing? that are all questions you ask and don't necessarily give the answers because much like the Mary question, it depends on the day, right? That's exactly the thing is that, so I, I do go, you do get to see three generations of the Cupertine crime family in this yeah. novel. And all three sort of seem like decent people in a way. They're at least funny yeah. <laughs> or interesting to hang out with, but I don't know if you'd want to be around them when they're angry. And each of them is is ruled by their own strange code, even the little kid that's in this. Yeah. Um, and so I, I really did want to show the complexity of what it's like to have this thing, to quote Jane's addiction, to have this thing inside of them because of this thing that's in me, as Jane's yeah. addiction once said, there's something that's inside these men that's not good. And how do they keep it down in order to live a normal life? So lately... Jesse, I've been watching this show late at night. Let me actually, contextually, my wife has been watching a show late at night about psychopaths. Okay. And I, I get into bed and she's watching this show and it's all these like stone cold murderers being interviewed after they've been caught. And they're all fascinating, scary people. And this is how my wife falls asleep at night as she watches shows about these stone cold murderers. And then I'm left up at four o'clock in the morning <laughs> watching the rest of the show <laughs> and the thing that is interesting about these people on this one show that she's been watching of late is that they're all actual psychopaths so they don't have the capacity to feel when we try to understand a psychopath it's nearly impossible for us 
because each of us has the capacity to feel. We have emotion. And so we would naturally feel sad if we killed our father and our, our mother or something. But you watch this show and he's, this kid kills his father and the mother and they interview him and they say, how do you feel? And he's, feel about what? He's, feel about what? You killed your mother and your yeah. father. And so I wanted to be sure that I was writing a book where these were not psychopaths. These were people that understood consequences and right from wrong, but that right and wrong gets skewed in their minds because of the code that they are living by. So I will admit that I at times can read quickly and for context, and I don't all, I skip sometimes the headings, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm watch. I'm reading this latest book, and it has been a little bit of time since I read the previous books. And I go, wait, this isn't set in modern times. This is right around 2001. Right. Oh, wait, did I didn't catch that during the first books? Why did you? And you, this actually becomes a theme in the book of. 9-11 and everything, but mm-hmm. why did you decide to set it at that time period? That's a great question. Uh, I set it in that time period for a couple of reasons. The first is that I lived in Las Vegas from 1998 until 2000. And so I knew the city in that era really well. Okay. So that that's part of it. But the larger part was that I wanted to write about the city of Las Vegas before the boon of facial recognition software. Post 9-11, Las Vegas became the most surveilled city in America. There's You can't move in that city without being recognized. And all of that came post 9-11 because, of course, the hijackers had spent time in Las Vegas. It used to be that in the casinos, of course, they had state-of-the-art surveillance everywhere. Post 9-11, that state-of-the-art surveillance moved out from the Strip and across the entire Las Vegas region. And of course, post-Boston, now surveillance on city streets is everywhere. You can't, it, it's it's getting very hard to do a hit and run yeah. on a street in a major American city because you are on a camera everywhere. And so they can backtrack whatever that car was back 10 miles back and find you. So it was very important to me that I was writing about a person hiding out in Las Vegas with plastic surgery in a time when he could go to the grocery store and not get caught. That time is gone. If they are looking for you in a particular city and they can get the access, they can subpoena those records from the Ralphs or whatever, they will find you. It's really hard to disappear in America. And so I wanted to write about that. I also wanted to write about today by using 20 years ago as a parallel. So in the new book, for instance, I talk a lot about the Patriot Act. Because as, and folks today, if you're young and you're listening to this, you might not know what the Patriot Act was, but it was essentially post 9-11, the United States government rolled out with surveillance. Yes. Um, And that has changed the way law enforcement in America works. The Patriot Act was rescinded for the most part, but the warrantless surveillance aspects of it became ubiquitous because of of the technology of cameras and phones and all of that. And so I wanted to show this is what we gave up after 9-11. We gave up our civil liberties after 9-11 for the perception of safety. And so I wanted to show that in this new book and remind people, hey, this is your doing. This is the choice that you made. And similarly, I read a book re- uh, recently by the writer Edward Humes, the title of which has suddenly disappeared from me. But it's all about the use of ancestral DNA to catch killers now. And essentially how so many crimes are being solved using people uploading their DNA to 23andMe and then going back in there and finding serial killers based on the relatives. So how they found the Golden State Killer is through ancestral DNA. But they're finding tons of killers through ancestral DNA. But now the question is, okay, if we're catching killers through ancestral DNA, what about people who do 
say, a robbery of uh, a th- of a grocery store, and they leave their hair. Should we use ancestral DNA to catch them? What about if someone um, has a DUI and spits on the side of the road but drives off? Should we use ancestral DNA to catch them? All these sort of huge civil rights issues that we're abdicating because this cool technology came out. Yeah, it's great. Let's catch killers. But did we agree to have my DNA used to catch my uncle if my uncle is a serial killer? He's not. He just looks like one. All these huge questions. I don't touch on that in this book, but it's part of that larger question of what have we abdicated to technology? Yeah, I, I remember Penn and Teller had a bit where they did a TSA joke. And for a while there, they were selling metal Bill of Rights, right? Right. <laughs> so that you could, it would set off the, the metal sector and you go, why, yes, please take my <laughs> Bill of Rights. We are going to get to Bruce in a minute. But as we talk about this, and an article just came out about you and your brother, and I thought it was a really well done article that gave a lot of praise to both of you, talked about your mom and the DNA of the family. But one of the things it said was that he writes heroes, you write villains. And I want to explore that, but I also want to talk about it. You did say you did write one hero Mm -hmm. in this book. And I wanted to give you a chance to share the story behind that because I do find I want a book about her. I want more (laughs) stories with this character. And unfortunately, I don't know if we will get it because of part of the reason. So please share a little bit about that. I I really appreciate you asking me about this. And I'm going to try not to cry when I talk about it. And if I do cry, it'll just make for better podcasts. So I've been writing books for a long time now. My first book came out in 2000. So I've been writing books for 23 years. And my first book was not good. I don't know if we talked about this the previous time that we were on the show, but my first book was not good. However, there was one person in America who liked it. And uh, her name was Christy Cade. And I don't remember if I found her review of it or she sent it to me. That's been lost to my memory. But in the year 2000, this young woman wrote glowingly about my first book. And we started having a correspondence. And it turned out that we actually had a lot of stuff in common. We both loved the replacements. She was a huge replacements fan. And so my my trinity of favorite music is the replacements, Jason Isbell and Bruce Springsteen. And so she was this huge replacements fan and I was a big replacements fan. We would talk about that. And we started just this correspondence that began with her writing a review on her live journal in the year 2000 of my first book, Fake Layer Cheat. And her name was Christy Cade. And Christy, when I met her online, she had a kid that was very young. She'd just gotten out of a really abusive marriage. She was dirt poor and I had dropped out of school right after high school. And she would periodically write me, you know, and ask me questions, ask for advice. And I would give her whatever advice I had to give at age 30 or whatever. But as the years went on, she would take my advice sometimes and not take my advice other times. And she ended up going back to school and she got she finished her bachelor's degree. She went and got a master's degree. She ended up becoming an administrator at a university. All the while, we're having this sort of continuing conversation about books. She was I would always send her my new book as soon as I finished it. And she would tell me what she thought. Just my number one fan on the planet. And she would talk to me about her son, who then became her daughter, and would talk about the struggle she was having with that, and how hard it was living in Florida with a child who was trans. And she had a boyfriend that she got in with that was on drugs, and he ended up dying of a fentanyl overdose in mm. her home. All, like every tragedy you can imagine befelled Christy over the 20 some odd years that we were friends. But we just constantly kept up this correspondence the entire time. Uh, and then once social media came along and she got on Facebook, I like I finally saw what she looked like and we would chat on Facebook and she ended up becoming friends with my friends and she just was a huge and voracious reader. And she was just, she was just a very sweet and kind person who I never met in real life, I should know. So in 2020, I was writing my book, The Low Desert, and... She contacted me and she said, 
I have cancer, a very rare cancer, and I don't know if I'm going to live long enough to read your book. Will you send me the stories as you write them? And I was like, oh, my oh, God. No. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, absolutely. And so I was sending her the stories. And one day she wrote me and she said, the most amazing thing happened to me today. And I'm wondering if you can use it. I said, okay. And she said that she was driving home from chemotherapy and she had the windows down in her car and she was letting the wind blow through her hair because she didn't know if she'd ever have that feeling again mm. of having the wind blow through her hair. And she wanted to experience that. And she got pulled over by a cop. And the cop pulled her over and said, what are you doing? You're going 85 and a 65. And she said, I have cancer and I'm just getting back from chemotherapy and I want to feel the wind blow through my hair. And the cop said, get out of your car. And she wrote me and she's, I thought I was going to prison. So she gets out of her car and she said, the cop hugged me. And the cop said to me, you are not going to die today. I'm not going to let you die today because I'm not going to let you drive 85 miles an hour in a 60, but you're not going to die today and you're not going to die tomorrow. You're going to kick this cancer's ass and you will have a full head of hair. And I want you to know that it's going to happen. You are too strong. And let her go and said, you're not going to die today. Don't die today. Let her go, got back in his car and drove off. And she said, can you use this for something? Will you put this in a story? And I was like, I will put this in a story. I said, I'm going to write a story about you. I was like, I'm going to make you a badass. And she was like, awesome. So I wrote this short story called Mazel for the book Low Desert about this FBI agent with cancer. And I put that scene in there, but in that scene, it's the FBI agent actually encounters Rabbi David Cohen, and they have that scene together because she loved Rabbi David Cohen. She loved that character. It was her favorite character that I had written. And so I got to give her a scene where she was with her favorite character. And I wrote it. She lived to see it. The book came out. She was in remission for a year from the cancer and she just loved that she was in this story. She was thrilled to death. She showed it to all her friends and stuff. And it really made me feel good that, that it made her happy. But then as I was writing Gangsters Don't Die, she had a relapse of the cancer. I had heard from her a couple months into the month into the relapse of the cancer. And I didn't hear from her for a couple weeks. And a friend of hers sent me an email and said that the cancer had hit her hard and she had died suddenly from it mm. and i hadn't talked to her maybe in two or three weeks and i knew that this christy character was going to be in gangsters don't die but i was like you know what i'm gonna make her the hero of gangsters don't die i'm gonna i'm gonna make her i'm gonna make her live forever and so i did i made her the hero of gangsters don't die and and so now now i get to tell the story about this great woman but also now she gets to live forever as the hero of this book and I thank you for sharing. That's so touching and what a beautiful tribute. And yeah, that that character is fascinating. And in what is really emotional is <laughs> Sal David does a lot of bad things, but in many ways her be disillusioned with him is almost one of the saddest things that happens. Yeah, it really <laughs> is. Yeah. And that was my intent is, and we won't tell readers when it happens, but when she yeah. finds out who he is, it's such a shock to her. Yes. Because she believes him to be this holy man. Yeah. She believes the things that he's told her. And it's particularly important because of what he tells her actually in Mazel. Yeah. So in that short story, they have this sort of profound connection that starts there and then it continues in this novel. And when she finds out that he's not what she says he is, it's a shock to everything that she believes about herself. And there's this great moment between the two of them where essentially she says, you played me for a, a sucker and I believed in you. I believed that I was going to get well because of you, essentially. And when I wrote that, oh, Jesse, I had tears streaming yeah. down my face i really did it was really hard to write that because i was essentially saying goodbye to my friend i wrote that it is a beautiful way to give her she's in the credits 
and the acknowledgements to the back. And I think that's wonderful. And I'm so glad you shared that story. One, I do want to talk a little, Bruce. Did you get to go to any shows this tour? So he's playing a concert in Los Angeles. Yes. In December. And okay. I was like, oh, I can't wait to go. Because that. So I told you I, I direct an MFA program. And right. I have this annual retreat that typically starts on like December 7th. Okay. And I was like, oh, perfect. He's going to be in LA on December 4th. I'm going to go. I can't wait. And then I looked at the contract I had signed for these retreats in the hotel. And I, for some reason, it's a week earlier. Oh, no. <laughs> and I was like, no. So I don't get to go. I don't get to go see him. I still will not have ever seen him live. Wow. I know. It's very upsetting. Yeah. But I do have here somewhere now, I do have, oh, it's behind me. You can possibly see it. Yeah, uh, I do have a now signed copy of his book. A friend of mine got that for me. So I get That's to look nice. at that every day and, and say, oh, That's hello, nice. nice to see you. So, um, But yeah. I have friends that have been seeing him. I'm, I'm getting reports from around the world. So yeah. my friend Rob um, saw him at Wrigley the other day. Yeah. And he, he was really disappointed. And I was like, you're disappointed? And he was like, he, so it's important to understand, Rob is not known for his inability to be a little hyperbolic. Okay. <laughs> and Rob said he was a glass shirt away from being Neil Diamond. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, really? He's uh, he, he's too old and too schmaltzy now. And I was like, is it because he sang a Commodore song? He's like, yeah, I don't need to hear him singing Night Shift. <laughs> 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 and I was like, come on, man. He's I saw him in 81. And I was like, all right, okay, here we go. Now, yes, now I'm yes, gonna yes. hear about it. Because yeah. Rob's a little older than me. So he's always I saw him whoever it is, the story's always I saw him in 81. Great. So, I was 10. <laughs> so for fun, I ended up seeing him three times in when Texas got COVID and couldn't see him in Tulsa. Oh, but okay. yeah, so I Houston, Dallas, I saw him with my wife and my son. Houston was my wife and I for Valentine's Day and then Austin by myself. Mm -hmm. And so for fun, I wrote a review of old school Springsteen fan and I put on a <laughs> darkness shirt and I said, forget about it. He's done nothing since darkness. <laughs> and I did. And then I like, okay. The Rising gets a pass because of 9-11. Okay? <laughs> Everything he's done since darkness is crap. But I'm going to give their... So I had a lot of fun with... Because it... I think of this terms, too, of... If you have this really great book, you don't want your readers to always go back, why aren't you doing this book again? Exactly. I've done that book. And I, I want to do that. Yeah. I hope you go... I hope you get a chance to go somehow. Uh, I, I hope I do too, because I really feel like I'm, I'm missing out in something spectacular. Yeah. And I got to tell you, I loved Letter to You. I thought Letter to You was a brilliant album. I think his best album in since since Devils and Dust yeah. was Letter to You. I just loved it. Yeah. And I even liked two songs from the cover album. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I, I have... I've not, I never stopped listening to Bruce. I listen to Bruce probably every yeah. single day. And yeah. I, like today, at some point I was working and and I listened to I'm on Fire. It came on. Yeah. And it's just, he gives me such profound joy every single time I hear him that I yeah. just know if I saw him live, mm -hmm. I would just collapse in a puddle of tears. But can I tell you my profound Bruce experience from the, since the last time you and sure, I Sure, please, always. So my profound Bruce experience the last time we spoke is... I love and I'm so moved by his cover of Purple Rain on the day that, that Prince sure. died, or the day after Prince Absolutely, died. yeah. And I go back and I watch that video constantly because it's really, it's not just about the song. It is about an expression of public mourning, right? Yes. And it's about understanding the shared emotion, not just about music, but of an era suddenly coming to an end and him doing that song and doing it so well only he has the gravity to sing that song and make it so powerful 
And then only he is smart enough to not play the solo himself. Yes. And to let Niles do it, right? Yes. And when Niles was still on Twitter, inexplicably, he followed me on Twitter, perhaps because I'm a famous novelist. Yeah. But I followed him as well. And one day I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to put it out there. I'm just going to... I'm just going to say, hey, Niles, can you talk to me a little bit about playing the solo in Purple Rain? And I did. And we had this great conversation on Twitter about it where everyone was watching, obviously. And I'm trying to be cool. And he was just he talked about the preparation for it and how he felt playing it and how his wife said, hey, you better get ready because Bruce is going to make you play it. And Niles' appreciation for it and understanding about what that solo means in that song and the fact that he, as one of the great guitarists of our time, is one of the few people truly qualified to play that solo. Again, it's just a, it's about something larger, like recognizing your place in the pantheon of the great guitarists in the history of rock music and knowing that Prince is one of the greatest guitarists yeah. in the history of rock music. And his solo is so powerful, and it brings me to tears every time I hear it. It doesn't matter if I'm watching the video or just listening to the one of the, the live collections that's out there now. It's so powerful. And I think about that a lot. I think about what he was talking about, but I just think about how in times of real emotional tumult, how we turn to artists to give us that sense that we're not alone in this world. And that's what Bruce's cover of Purple Rain does. It tells you, you are not alone in this morning. That we all, every single person in this band appreciates that morning as well. I, that's beautiful. I did want to share with you a personal thing. I did listen a little bit to our previous episode. Candidly, did I ask him the Mary question? So I was listening and like, oh, I did. Okay, I don't need to do it this time. But you, I was listening to how much you love Letter to You. And so... A weird thing happened to me on um, that Friday on February 10th, I got an email and a text from my sister saying that my brother who is fighting cancer, it it's bad. Mm-hmm. It's not, he's not going to last. And I go, mm-hmm. okay, do I need to come to Houston? She's no, because of COVID, they're not letting us in the hotel, mm-hmm. the hospital room. You would just be here in the parking lot. We can't even wait right. in the waiting room. Right. He goes, and, and Dean would have wanted you to go see Bruce. I said, okay. Mm-hmm. So I saw Bruce Friday night on Monday, February 13th. I got word my brother passed. Mm-hmm. And so on the 14th, not only did Bruce play if I was the priest and mm-hmm. I went, okay, that's pretty good. That's but pretty hearing, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But hearing him do, I'll see you in my dreams. Mm-hmm. Because the last time I saw my brother was a few months before, and we had a wonderful discussion, Todd. It was everything you could want. Just we spent two or three hours ignoring the fact that he was dying and just Mm -hmm. talking the way brothers do about things we love together and different things. And at the end, he said, you may never see me again. I go, because no, I hope, but maybe not. But I want you to know I couldn't have asked for a better big brother. And so we hugged each other. And so I'm listening to, I'll see you in my dreams as I'm driving, right. right? Oh man, that's tough. Yeah. And then, then like on Wednesday or Thursday, I found out that a lady that I'd went to high school with my first high school crush, mm-hmm. never were more than friends, but I had such a crush on Sarah. She died of cancer and oh, it was gosh. just losing my brother and losing one yeah. of her oldest friends. And it just like, gosh, and you really do. And so you're right that, you know, the world lost Prince. Right. And to have the E Street Band show up, everyone having a piece of purple on. Right. To do this classic song and and to kill it. Kill it. Kill it. it. Just amazing. And everyone is just and that's where music happens. Mm-hmm. I could write a book about everything that goes into him singing that song on that night and why it is the definitive tribute to him. You can have Bruno Mars sing When Doves Cry every fucking night for the rest of your life, and it's not going to mean shit to me. But that night, with Bruce coming out there, starting his show with it, and absolutely playing it note for note and having the emotion behind it, that's it, 
it tells you something larger about the man. It tells you that he understands that while he is considered one of the great artists of our time, that he stands side by side with some other great artists. And that they together are the soundtrack for a hundred years of American life. And that means something. I remember right after Prince passed, somebody posted a video or interview with him. And it might have been on The View or something. But someone who said, you know, you're known for your live show. And he said, that's because... I learned from the best. Mm. If I'm backstage at a Bruce Springsteen and E Street Band show, I'm taking notes right. because I you learn from the best. Right. And right. and just and I always throw this out there. Every Super Bowl, there's the discussion. Oh, what's the best <laughs> Super Bowl draft on right. every row? And all the Bruce fans say, "Oh, he was the best." And I just go. Prince might have something to say about that. (laughs) Doing Purple Rain in the rain. Come on, man. Come on. (laughs) You two, right after 9-11, they're just, it's in the discussion. It's not Bon Jovi. I'm going to tell you that much. It's not (laughs) not fucking Bon Jovi. It was like, so what's next for you creatively? The biggest thing that's coming next is I'm about to go on the road like I am Bruce Springsteen. And I'm going to play a bunch of shows slash go to bookstores and hope people show up. Okay. Uh, I'm going to be on tour for two months, basically. Um, And then I've got another book that I am due to write called The Salt and Sea, which is based on uh, the short story that is the title story of my previous book, The Low Desert. I've been working on some screenplays, an adaptation of Gangster Land that we'll be working on hopefully when we resell the rights to that. I got a lot of stuff, but the next big thing for sure is I have to write a new book. And so I'm going to do that, but it's hard because I've devoted a decade of my life to writing about this one character. And now I'm not writing about that character anymore. And so I have to figure out how to write books again about someone who's not a defrocked hitman posing as a rabbi. So I, I'm curious to see what happens. I, I don't really know what's going to happen. You know what this might be? This yeah. might be the period of time where I bring in Tom Morello because I'm uh, unsure about whether or not I can still do it. <laughs> I was I was going to say I don't know. Did you read Warren Zane's book on Nebraska? I did. Yes, an amazing book. Yes, uh, amazing book. And so maybe this next book will be your Nebraska, right? Like you've had this great success because I I told Warren this. I was lucky enough to interview him, and I said I read this almost like it was a mystery. Mm-hmm. You're exploring why would you go from the river, all the success, then you skip a bed, born in USA, massive success. Why did he take a step back? Why did he take a breath? And he talked about that, that mm-hmm. this is a breath. This yeah. is a deep breath before you go next, right? Yeah, I, I can see that. In fact, it's so funny. Writers, all writers love Nebraska. We all right. love Nebraska. And it's because it's, of course, so dark and yeah. so brooding. And it's a perfect record to put on when you're writing because it puts you in the mood. And it's yeah. all they're all crime songs also. Like yeah. the whole record's a noir novel. Every writer I know loves Nebraska. And every writer I know is, I want to write a novel that's like Nebraska. And I got to tell you, my thinking about the Salton Sea is I want to write the Salton Sea like it's Nebraska. I want it to be spare, where where these gangster books are 450 pages. I want this to be 225 pages. Yeah. I want it to be hard and dark and sad and fucked up. And this is my Nebraska. And I'm such a cliche because even Springsteen was a cliche, but it's so true. Every writer I know is, I'm going to write my Nebraska, and it's two cops in LA. It's, that's not your Nebraska. <laughs> I love that idea, though. It is so true. And yeah, that, that's awesome. Gangsters don't die. As I said, it's out today, as he edits ahead. At everywhere you can find great bookstores, whether you go to your, we always like to say, support your local bookstore. Yes. Your website will have the dates of the signings. Absolutely. Yes, sir. And Any I'm going to be, I'm, uh, 
any chance of coming to your house and staying in your guest room? Is that any what you're chance? Ask? Yes. <laughs> Are you coming to Texas? Is it? Do I need to go down to Houston to see you? Or I'm not yet scheduled for Texas, but I'm hoping to get an invitation to the Texas Book Festival because I'd love to come out for that. Okay. So it, planners the Texas Book Festival. If you're listening to this, and I know, yeah, the people that plan the Texas Book Festival are big set lusting fans. Yes. If you're listening, I come cheap. You give well, me some airfare. You put me in a hotel room. Hey. You let me uh, change the state laws that I don't <laughs> like. I will come and visit. Oh, beautiful, beautiful true city. story, Todd. True story. <laughs> I had to, a couple people were afraid to come on my podcast because it's this white guy from Texas. And I had to send them an email <laughs> saying, I am a blueberry in a red <laughs> strawberry field. Trust me. <laughs> You're like, uh, do I look like the kind of guy who would vote for Ted Cruz? Yeah, no. <laughs> All right, Todd, if someone wants to reach you, what's the best way? Uh, you can find me on every single social media that exists. Literally, uh, Jesse, I'm like, every time they roll out a new social media, I'm like, fine, put me on threads, put me on Blue Sky. Put me on fucking Mastodon, wherever the fuck that is. <laughs> Put me on all of them. You can find me at toddgoldberg.com. You can find me on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, on yeah. Hive, on Blue Sky, on Threads, yeah. on whatever Twitter's called. You can find me just lurking around your local Krispy Kreme. Wherever there's someone who needs justice done, I'll be there. Uh, I am good job. Code. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The latest book is Gangsters Don't Die. It is the fourth book of the trilogy. It is worth <laughs> listening to. All. The reason we keep joking that is actually there's three novels and a collection of short stories, but you need to read them all. Check it out. My friend, um, Yes, the guest room is here. If you're in <laughs> Dallas, let me Perfect. know. We will find a barbecue or Tex-Mex for you. Oh. It's wonderful to see you. Nice to see uh, you. Too. Thank Thanks you for again. having me. I appreciate it. No problem. Listeners, go check out the book. Remember to be kind, be safe, and we'll talk to you soon. You just heard the fun talking. Hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, said Listing Bruce. The theme for Set Lessing Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.